Carson read for us Matthew chapter 8 and a few verses from that text. If you would, please go to Mark chapter 6. Keep your finger here. I want to read a a second text with you, if I could. In uh, Mark chapter number 6, verse number 1 of Mark chapter number 6. The Bible says this. It says, and he went out from thence. This is Jesus, the Bible speaking of. It says, and he went out from thence and, and came into his own country and his disciples follow him. And when the Sabbath day was come, he began to teach in the synagogue. And many hearing him were astonished, saying, from whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary? the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon, and are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. But Jesus said unto them, A prophet is not without honor, but in his own country and among his own kin and in his own house. And he could there do no mighty work, save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went round about the villages teaching. In these two passages of scripture, there's one common word that you'll find in both of these uh, accounts that we read in both Matthew chapter 8 and Mark chapter number 6. And it's actually the only two times in the Bible that this specific word is used in reference towards Jesus. And it's that word that he marveled, that he marveled. And that, that word marvel means to be filled with wonder or to be filled with surprise or, or admiration, and I, and I started to think, and it's, it's interesting, I, I kind of teared up sitting up here because God really uh, confirmed this when I thought you walked in because I had no idea you were going to be here, but uh, the best story uh, I can think of that sort of illustrates this, this word marvel is, uh, I don't know if you remember this, I'm sure you do, but the time that you and I and your mom went to Yankee Stadium. And uh, I grew up a, a big Yankee fan with uh, my dad growing up, growing up watching the VHS uh, tape. Yes, I know what a VHS tape is. Uh, but uh, watching the VHS tapes of the Yankees World Series. And, and I remember in high school uh, for my birthday one, one year, uh, I found his mom said, hey, you want to go with us to New York? And uh, I'm not a big a big city guy. I don't really like people that much. Uh, and so big cities aren't really my thing. But he said, you want to go to a Yankees game? And I would say, no more. I'm in. Let's go. Uh, and so we got to go. And I didn't really fully comprehend it. Uh, but when we got there, it was actually, like, I, don't, I don't even know how it all got set up. But it was this, this almost this VIP experience. Like we got to take a tour uh, through the Yankee Stadium Museum uh, and see all the different uh, uh, World Series trophies that the Yankees have won. They have them on display and uh, got to see Thurman Munson's locker. Some of you that don't know baseball that you could care less about this, but this is big stuff to Yankees fans uh, and you get to go through and then I thought it was all done. I thought, you know, okay, now we'll just wait for the seven o'clock game tonight, but then uh, whoever was guiding us through the tour said, okay, now next stop is the Yankees dugout and uh, I kind of did a double take. I said, what now? Uh, and, and they actually walked us into the Yankees dugout and let us stand there uh, in the same spot that all of these baseball players that I've watched on TV and, and looked up to. And, and uh, we got to stand there. And it's one of my favorite pictures I still have, I still look at it this day, is, is Ifa and I standing on the railing of Yankee Stadium looking out 
uh, into the outfield, and over our, over our heads, you can see the big Yankee Stadium uh, uh, placard that runs across the top of the stadium, the big scoreboards in the distance, the sun's out, there's some clouds up there, and I'm sitting there as a 15, 16-year-old kid thinking, man, Derek Jeter rubbed this spot, let me rub this a little harder, okay? Uh, you know, and, and all of these names start coming to my mind, and, and in that moment, I was marveling at what I was experiencing. I was filled with so much wonder standing here, and I've only ever seen this on TV, and all these people that I've looked up to and watched highlights of, and they stood in this same spot, and I was filled with this admiration, this, this surprise, this, this wonder. I was marveling at the situation, the experience I was taking in at that moment. And it's that same word that the Bible uses, only two times is it used to describe Jesus, and it's in these two scenarios. One, the Bible says this, this Roman centurion, what Brother Carson read for us, this, this Roman centurion comes to Jesus and, and presents this need, saying, I, I have this servant uh, who's nigh unto death, and Jesus, I need, uh, I need you. He, he needs your healing. And, and Jesus says, okay, I'll come and heal him. And he says, no, no, I'm not worthy that you would even set foot in my house. Don't, you, you don't, even, don't even come. All I need from you is just say the word. J just say the word and it'll be done. And the Bible says that Jesus, when he heard that, it says he marveled. He, he was filled with that same level of, of wonder and surprise and admiration. And he, he followed up by saying, verily I say to you, I have not found so great faith. No, not in Israel. He, he marveled at this Roman centurion's faith. But then you, you flip the script and, and you look at Mark chapter 6 and and it's a, 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 an account of Jesus coming to Nazareth, his hometown, to the people that know him, that know his family. They know him on a personal level. And if anyone was, was prime for a work of Jesus, it was Nazareth. At least you would think, humanly speaking. But the Bible says that at the end of this account, it says that Jesus marveled because of their unbelief. The, the same word, the same word that was used to describe the wonder and admiration that Jesus had for the centurion's faith was the same word that was used to describe the lack of faith of the Nazarites. And in that thought, you begin to understand that how many times do we as Christians, we find ourselves in a position where we need God to work in our lives, there, there's, there's a situation maybe we find ourselves in where, where things are out of our control. Uh, we, we, we feel helpless in a way, and, and, and we say, God, if, if anything's going to happen, it's going to have to be you. If we have a decision that we have to make, and say, God, I need wisdom. I need to, 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 to know where, where you're guiding me and directing me. And we find ourselves in these positions, and in those moments, the question becomes, which side of the spectrum does our faith fall on? You, you, you see, the Bible says in Luke 18, verse number 8, the Bible says, Nevertheless, when the Son of Man cometh, shall he find faith on the earth. That, that's what God is looking for in us as his people is, is faith. And, and in these moments where we are relying and we, and we need God to do something in our lives, the question becomes, what will our faith produce? Because on one side, we see the faith of the Roman centurion produce a miracle that had no explanation except for God. But you flip the, the, the coin, if you will, and on the other side, you have a, a famine, if you will, a complete lack of the working of God because of the unbelief of the Nazarites. 
And somewhere as Christians, we fall in this spectrum of faith. We're either on, on the side of, of a lack of faith, we're on the side of, of great faith that gets to see God do, do miracles, or we're in the middle where we would consider lukewarm. And Revelation 3 makes it extremely clear how God feels about a lukewarm Christianity. And so somewhere in the, in the middle of this, we have got to, to, to remind ourselves and be reminded from the pages of Scripture the importance of our faith. And number one tonight, I want to just make a, a few simple statements, nothing that you probably have not heard before, but this is certainly something that God has been working in my life about because there are things that I am responsible for that I, I in all honesty, have no control over. But it's in those moments that where's our faith? In what, in what position do we find ourselves in, in our faith? And number one, faith is only as good as its object. Faith is only as good as its object. Just, just com- contrast these two uh, accounts that we just read a moment ago. In Matthew chapter 8, the centurion trusted solely in Jesus Christ. If you notice in Matthew chapter 8, Brother Carson already read it for us, but he, he presents, the centurion presents his need to Jesus in verse number six. He says, and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, grievously tormented. He, he lays it out for him. And Jesus makes a very matter-of-fact statement in verse number seven. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. I mean, that's very matter-of-fact. That's, that's very straightforward. There's really no ambiguity there. It's I will come and heal him. Now, now, for most of us, that's great, but that's only step one. Step two is getting Jesus to my house. And, and with Jesus' popularity, you can imagine the throngs of people that are all about. And if it were me, and I were in the centurion's shoes, I'd be grabbing onto Jesus' arm. I'd have the Roman military escorting me to my house. I'm holding onto him. I'm not letting him go. Because if he escapes, if he gets away, if too many people get in, in between me and Jesus, this isn't going to work out. And I'm going to make sure that Jesus gets to my house to heal my servant. That, that would be me. And if it were the centurion, and that's how this account read, if I were honest, I couldn't even blame him. That, that would make complete sense to me. But what doesn't make complete sense to me is what the centurion said. In verse number eight, he says, Lord, I'm not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Don't, don't, don't even come with me, Jesus. I'm not worthy for your presence to even step foot in my house. Just say the word, and, and I know my servant will be healed. That, that amount of faith is something that I, I don't believe I can attest to, but that, that's something that this centurion said, I trust solely in you, Jesus. There's no plan B. There, there's no, there's no uh, 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 way I can finagle this to make it work in my benefit. Just, just say the word, and it'll be done. You contrast that attitude with what we read about in Mark chapter 6. Mark chapter 6, again, it's, it's Jesus in his hometown. I want you to notice something in, in Mark chapter 6, if you would turn there, if you're not there already. But in verse number 2, it says, When the Sabbath day was come, he, that's Jesus, began to teach in the synagogue, and many hearing him were astonished. This is what they started saying, saying, From whence hath this man these things? And what wisdom is this which is given unto him that even such mighty works are wrought by his hands? Is not this the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James and Joseph and of Judah and Simon? And are not his sisters here with us? And they were offended at him. What are they saying? They're saying, we know who you are, Jesus. We know your family. 
We know your upbringing. We know your background. Who do you think you are? Who, who, what gives you the right to teach us these things, to tell us these things? You know, ultimately what they were saying, Jesus, we don't understand you. We can't comprehend you, so we're going to dismiss you. It says they were offended at him. And we look at that, we say, man, how dare they? But how often are we guilty of the same exact thing in our lives? We don't understand what God is doing in our life. We don't understand the positions we find ourselves in. And instead of trusting that God has our best interest in mind and, and God is leading us and guiding us for a purpose, we just dismiss God. We say, I, I don't have time for this. I, I, this is not what I had in mind. This is not the direction I thought my life was going. I'm not, I'm not on board with this. It really brings a whole new meaning to Proverbs 3, verse 5. I memorized this verse as a child, and I can quote it to you without even thinking about it, but when you stop to think about it, the Bible says, Trust in the Lord with all thine heart, and lean not unto thine own understanding. What were the Nazarites doing? They were leaning on what they could understand what they could comprehend. And they said, this doesn't make any sense to us how someone we watched grow up could now come back to our town and do these mighty works and claim that he is God. That doesn't make any sense. We don't have anything to do with you, Jesus. Who do you think you are? Just, just, just get out of here. Leave us alone. This, this is ridiculous. You're, you're absurd. They were offended at him. You understand that Satan is a master at using our own reasoning to dissuade our faith. He, he is a master at making us try to find our way out of these situations. And before we know it, we've completely uh, taken ourselves out of the path of the miracles and the power and the blessing of God. Why? Because instead of trusting in God, we have now placed our faith in our own understanding, in our own abilities, in our own reasoning. And we understand that everybody has faith. You know, it's the old cliche, when you came in, you had faith to sit down and trust that your chair was going to hold you up. On that same token, you could have all the faith in the world that I could ride a unicycle. But I can tell you right now, if I tried it, I would just provide comic relief. There would be nothing uh, cool uh, about riding a unicycle. Why? Because your faith, as much as you believe that I could ride a unicycle, I promise you, your faith would be very much misplaced. And, and you see, our, our salvation... And our position in Christ comes through faith. Ephesians 2.8, for by grace are ye saved through faith. In, Philipp, or I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17, the Bible says that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. In, in uh, Philippians chapter 3, verse 9, the Bible says, And be found in him, not having mine own righteousness, which is of the law, but that which is through the faith of Christ the righteousness which is of God by faith. And you understand, if, if we as Christians can trust God with our eternal soul and our destiny, that, then surely we can trust him with the challenges we face on a day-to-day -day life. But somehow from the moment of salvation to our daily walk as a Christian, we, we go from trusting in God for eternity to saying, oh, hold on a second, uh, we're, gonna, we're gonna try to figure this out ourselves. We're going to try to work our way through this and try to reason my way through this. And we begin to, instead of trusting in the God of heaven that's brought us this far, we begin to trust in our own understanding. And our faith is misplaced. And the moment we do that, we have disconnected ourselves from the blessing and the power of God. 
You understand that in Hebrews chapter 11, verse number one, it's probably the, 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 the go-to verse for defining what faith is. The Bible says, now faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And uh, if, if my Aunt Heather was here, she'd be so proud of what I'm about to say because I remember a thing or two from English class. And if you break that sentence down, the word is is what we call a, a, a linking verb. It's linking something in the second half of the sentence to, to that subject of the sentence, which is the word faith. And it, if you start to look through it, that's really what we would call in English a predicate nominative. And, and the way you test for a predicate nominative, I hope she's watching this, she'd be very proud, okay? But it goes faith equals whatever your predicate nominative is. And if you read Hebrews 11, it says faith is the substance. Faith equals substance. You see, just saying you believe God doesn't mean a whole lot. Just saying you have faith doesn't actually mean you actually have faith. Faith, our faith as Christians, ought to have substance. If you would, turn over to James chapter two. Keep your finger here in Matthew and Mark. We'll be back in in just a moment. But James chapter number two. You understand that true faith placed in Christ will produce a life that's lived for Christ. In James chapter number two, verse number 17, the Bible says, even so faith, if it hath not works, is dead, being alone. A man may say, thou hast faith and I have works. Show me thy faith without thy works and I will show thee my faith by my works. You see, the centurion, he placed his faith in Jesus, and what did that faith produce? It really led him to a place of humility that he had never been before. Jesus, don't even step foot in my house. I'm not worthy. Just say the word, and my servant will be healed. But you you look at the, the people of Nazareth, and their lack of faith led them to reject God completely. And really the question becomes, well, first off, what, where is your faith? What's the object of your faith? Are you still honestly trusting in God to meet your every need? Or have you somewhere along the line began to slip and begin to place your faith in yourself? And you have to answer that question one way or the other. But then the follow-up question is, if you say my faith is in God, what is your faith producing? What is your faith producing? You know, it, you, you hit the, the main points that you kind of think of when you think faith. What, what, where are your finances at? You know, the Bible says where, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. And a lot of times, uh, I know especially where, where we are in Mississippi, we have the lowest cost of living probably in the United States, but it's also because we have the lowest wages anywhere in the United States. It's kind of the catch-22. Uh, you know, there's really no good jobs, if you will, in the, the immediate area in which we live. And, and you begin, to, I hear it all the time, you know, people, the, the finances begin to get tight and things begin to, to kind of uh, uh, not seem to work itself out. And the first thing that we do, we say, we believe God, but we're done tithing until the finances kind of straighten themselves out. The, the first thing that goes is our giving to God. Why? Because we're trying to budget our way out of it. We're, we're, now, I'm not against budgeting. I love budgeting. I'm all for it. But that's not a replacement for faith in God. When, when it comes down to, to, to where, where are we serving in ministry, a lot of times we, we try to pull back from ministry. I know this is from personal experience. Why? Because we're afraid. 
We don't, we don't feel like we belong there. But you consider Joseph in Matthew chapter number two. Uh, uh, for sake of time, you don't have to go there. But uh, uh, the, the angel came to Joseph and told him, look, you need to go to Egypt. Herod is on the, the hunt. He's trying to kill. All, he made the decree. All, all uh, baby boys two years and younger were to be killed. And the angel comes to Joseph and says, okay, take your family and go to Egypt. And Joseph obeys. He spends the time there that he does. And then one day he gets that message once again, say, okay, it's time to go back. Now, Joseph knew, he had heard that Herod had passed away, but his son is now in control. And, and as far as he knows, the, the target on his son's head still exists. But here is this angel bringing him the message saying, it's time for you to go back to Israel. And the Bible says that Joseph was afraid the Bible says, I'm, I'm turning over there just so I don't misquote it, but the Bible says in Matthew chapter 2 and in verse number 22, it says, he was afraid to go thither, notwithstanding, besides the fear, it says, notwithstanding being warned of God in a dream, he turned aside into parts of Galilee. He said, he was afraid, but he said, God, if that's what you want me to do, if that's where you want me to go, I have enough faith to say that's where I'm going. He obeyed. And sometimes we pull ourselves back out of fear and we're relying on our own understanding. I'm not good enough. I don't have the capabilities. I don't have the qualifications. I'll tell you right now, I didn't go to school to be in education, and yet that's where I found myself. And I was talking to Carson this morning. We have eerily similar stories, and it's kind of funny when we started talking. Uh, we both went to Bible college, not for education. We both came out of Bible college, ended up in, uh, in education, and then we both found ourselves in administration, which was the furthest thing from what I wanted to do. And, uh, and it's one of those things where that's not where I had envisioned God taking me, but that's where I am. And, and despite the fear and the, the uncertainties, do we have the faith to say, God, whatever you want. You understand, this is a big deal because Hebrews 11, verse six uh, says, but without faith, it is impossible, that's a big word there, it is impossible to please him. Romans 14 tells us, for whatsoever is not of faith is sin. So, so this is a big deal in the eyes of God. Where is your faith? Because faith is only as good as its object. But number two tonight, it's not just that faith is only as good as its object. It's also here that you got to understand your faith directly affects others. Your faith directly affects others. You understand that it was not the servant that came to Jesus and presented his need. It, it was not the servant that said, Jesus, I, 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 I'm going through this trial right now. I'm dealing with this ailment. There's no answers in sight. Would you please heal me? It wasn't the, the servant at all. It was the centurion. And it was the faith of the centurion that brought healing to the servant. If you were to look in Matthew chapter 9, there's another uh, account here of a, of a man with palsy. It's, it's the account of the man that uh, his four friends carried him to Jesus. And, and, and they got to the house where Jesus was. And, and they couldn't get in the front door because the mass of people was, was, too, was too heavy. They couldn't get through the crowd to get to Jesus. So what did they do? They climbed up to the roof. They tore the roof off. And they lowered their friend down on his bed through the roof and dropped him right in front of Jesus. And the Bible says in Matthew chapter 9, verse 2, that Jesus seeing their faith, the faith of the man's friends, that's where the healing came. So, so you understand that the faith of these men were affecting other people, 
But in Mark chapter 6, the Bible says that Jesus couldn't do any mighty works in Nazareth because of their unbelief. In fact, in verse 5, it says he could, he could there do no mighty work save that he laid his hands upon a few sick folk and he healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. So I, I started to think, I wonder how many people missed out on a life-changing experience, on a miracle from God because of the unbelief of the, the masses in Nazareth. I wonder how many sick folk were lined up on the streets waiting for Jesus to pass their way in hopes of a, of a miracle, of a, of a healing, of a life-changing event, and Jesus never came because he wasn't welcome. Jesus never came because of the, the sheer lack of belief of the Nazarite people. And you understand that the faith we live by will have a direct influence on those around us. The Bible says the just shall live by faith. And I guess if you think about it, the flip side, that's also true. The lack of faith that we exhibit will also affect those around us. If you were to look through our Hebrews chapter 11, of course, we know that chapter to be the hall of faith and all of these great uh, uh, Bible characters that we read and know about and just their, their incredible uh, feats of faith that God used them to accomplish. We know this, but you understand that a, a vast majority of those people and, and, and the areas in which God noted that their faith was so great that same faith directly affected somebody else. You know, I'll give you one example. Uh, in Hebrews 11, it talks about both Moses and his parents. Both are listed in Hebrews chapter 11. And the Bible says, by faith, uh, Moses' parents defied Pharaoh's decree. They, they directly defied the decree that Pharaoh issued, saying all uh, uh, young men two years and younger are to be killed. They directly defied that. They said that is not uh, uh, honoring and pleasing to God, that is murder, uh, and we ought to obey God rather than man. And, and not to insult your intelligence, but we know how that affected Moses. He didn't die. Uh, and, and, you know, that was a, their faith directly affected Moses. But then you turn the attention towards Moses, and, and by faith, Moses forsook Egypt. You know, he could have grown up as, as the heir to the throne in Egypt. You know, he grew up, he would have grown up in Pharaoh's household and, and, and held this position of prominence and prestige. And he could have held on to that and, and watched his fellow Jews uh, suffering in slavery. And he did not have to associate himself with that group. But by faith, he forsook Egypt. By faith, he identified himself with God's people. And we know the rest of the story. How did that affect the nation of Israel? He led them out of slavery into the wilderness and, and the rest of the account that we know in the Old Testament. But the faith that Moses exhibited affected countless people. People that would have never been able to escape their bondage had Moses not lived a life of faith. You, you understand that this is, this is something that we've got to be very careful of because whether you know it or not, there are people relying on you to live a life of faith. They are relying on you to make a difference in their life. Whether you think so or not, whether you care or not, it's true. And we've got to understand, we've got to ask ourselves, is my life operated in such a way by faith that God can work and can bless? You know, one of the immediate things we think of is prayer, our prayer life. And, and, and is my prayer life 
one of faith so that others can depend on me to get prayers through for them. You know, you know, I, I often heard it growing up, you know, keep short accounts with God and, and make sure that you're always on praying ground because you never know when that emergency comes up and that, that, that crisis presents itself. You don't always have time to start going off and confessing all these sins that you've been building up and, and trying to restore that fellowship with God real quick so that I can get this prayer through because I need God right here, right now. That, that, that's not the mentality we ought to have as Christians. You know, in James 1, uh, 6 and 7, the Bible says, but let him ask in faith, nothing wavering. For he that wavereth is like a wave of the sea, driven with the wind and tossed. Notice this next part. It says, for let not that man think that he shall receive anything of the Lord. If you don't come to God with a full assurance and a full heart of faith, don't expect to get your prayers answered. If you come to God wavering, thinking, well, maybe I can figure out my way out of this, don't expect for God to come through for you. Pastor Bish, you made, you made a statement. I don't even know when it was. It was years and years ago, but I've never forgot it. I have it written down somewhere. But it, it, you made the statement. You said, don't, don't pray 10-cent prayers and expect million-dollar answers from God. Don't, don't come to God and, and, and just assume that just because I said some magic words, all of a sudden it's going to happen. Or, or don't assume that, well, God did it for other people, but yeah, I don't know if he'll really do it for me. You know, in Philemon, this is always an interesting thought for me. Paul was writing to Philemon, and in this, this one chapter, this one book of the Bible, Paul says to Philemon, he says, But withal, prepare me also a lodging, for I trust that through your prayers I shall be given unto you. That's a, that's a heavy-hitting statement. If you think about it, you're Philemon, and you're reading this, this letter from Paul himself, and he says, I want to come see you, and I'm trusting that through your prayers, I'll make it. That's a lot of pressure for your prayer life. For Paul to tell you, I'm trusting your prayer life to get me there. <laughs> okay, I'm going to start fasting extra hard now. I'm going to do some prayer and fasting, couple that together. We got some business to take care of if Paul is expecting my prayer life to get him here. But how often do we ask for prayer from one another? We say, I'm praying for you. Can, can, you, can you get those prayers through in a time of need? Why? Because those people are relying on your faith. Your faith directly affects other people. And then lastly here, it's not just that faith is only as good as its object, but number two, it's also that faith directly affects others. And then lastly here, God does not want our faith to stay stagnant. He doesn't want our faith to stay stagnant. That word stagnant uh, means to, to be stale, not advancing or developing. If you want to, you may be already in Mark, but go to Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9. Mark chapter 9, we, we read a passage here beginning in verse 14. We won't read the whole thing for sake of time, but this, this man has a, a possessed son a son possessed with a devil, and he brings his son to, to his disciples and is asking his disciples to help his son in this infirmity that he's in. And, and his disciples are unable to cast this devil out. We see that in verse number 18, the end of the verse, the, the father is talking to Jesus, and he says, I spake to thy disciples that they should cast him out, and they could not. And so in verse number uh, 20, the Bible says, they brought him, that's the young man, unto him. That's Jesus. And it says that when he saw him, straightway the spirit tear him. 
and he fell on the ground and wallowed, foaming. And he asked his father, how long is it ago since this came unto him? And he said, of a child. And oft times it hath cast him into the fire and into the waters to destroy him. But if thou canst do anything, have compassion on us and help us. Notice verse 23 here. This is, this is the access or the power that we have through faith. The Bible says, this is Jesus. It says, and Jesus said unto him, if thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. It's an incredible statement. But look in verse 24. It says, and straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Understand that this, this father recognized, God, I believe, but I know I'm human. And I know that I, I, I falter. And I know that there's probably areas in my life where I haven't completely given myself over to you. And, and God, I believe, I believe that you can do this. I believe you can heal my boy. But would you help thou my unbelief? And, and we find ourselves in this same position so many times. We all need help in this area of faith. We all have faith. The question becomes, where are we placing our faith? But we have to be humble enough to say, God, help, help my unbelief. Even the disciples came to Jesus in Luke 17, 5, and they said, Lord, increase our faith. If the disciples who witnessed all that God did and, and were firsthand witnesses of the miracles of God, and they still came to Jesus and said, Lord, increase our faith. Well, surely we're in the same boat as those apostles. And so as we close tonight, I just want to leave you with three, three very brief things, how to strengthen your faith, how to strengthen your faith. Again, nothing you more than likely haven't heard before, but a, a, a tremendous reminder to us here as we close. Number, number one here, how to strengthen your faith is cultivate your relationship with God. Cultivate your relationship with God. You understand that the people we trust the most are also the same ones that we know the dearest. You know, I, I am the world's greatest greeter. I am phenomenal at, hi, how are you? But after that, I'm not good for a whole lot of conversation. I, I am a very, I struggle very much with making conversation with strangers. Uh, uh, more, more so, I struggle with, with people I know, but don't really know fully that well. Strangers, I assume I'm probably not going to see them again, and I can carry on a random conversation for five minutes in a Walmart checkout line or something. Uh, but it's those people that I see but don't really know. I'm great at, hi, how are you? And that's about as far as I get. But you know, it's those people that I'm not probably going to reveal my heart to. It's those people I'm not probably going to reveal my deepest secrets to or the areas I'm struggling in or, or the, the, the private prayer requests that are on my heart. I'm not gonna really share those with those people. Why? Because I don't know them. I don't trust them. And, and at the same time, a lot of times we don't trust God because we as Christians haven't put an effort in to know God. And the only way we will build our faith and, and build our trust in God is if we cultivate our relationship with God. Because the closer we get to God and the more we begin to know God, the more obvious it becomes that he is worthy of our trust. And, and, and the more alive the truths of the word of God become. And, and we, we read the verse, I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. And, and that verse takes on a whole new meaning when we, when we truly know God. 
And when we, when we begin to consider these things, we understand, okay, I can trust him. I might not understand. I might not know the big picture. I don't have to. I know I can trust him because he's good and he is God. Cultivate your relationship with God. Number two, focus on your blessings. I got nervous this morning when pastor started talking about this in church. He was kind of getting really close to stealing my thunder here. Uh, but uh, focus on your blessings because you know what our human tendency is, is we always want to focus on the negative. I'm what I like to call a realist. I don't purposely search for the negative in a situation, but if it's there, I have no problem recognizing it. Uh, and so my wife, she is the optimist. She can see the good in everything, and it annoys the fire out of me sometimes. Uh, but, you know, I'm one of those people where if it's bad, I'll call it like I see it. If it's good, great. If it's bad, I'm going to tell you that too. Uh, and I really don't care one way or the other. Uh, and a lot of times as Christians, we just focus on the negative. We say, well, I, with all of this going wrong in my life, how can I trust God? How can you not trust God with everything that he's done in your life? You know, we, 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 we have all of the, the things around us, whether good, bad, or ugly, and we just want to hone in on the few things that we don't like about our life or we don't like about our situation, and we use those to seemingly justify why we can't trust God for the big picture. And God says, are you forgetting all of this that I've done in your life? When you woke up this morning, my mercies for you were brand new. When you got up this morning, you breathed. That was me. You know, it's Psalm 1830, the Bible says, as for God, his way is perfect. You don't like where you are right now, but I'm telling you, this is, this is the perfect way for your life. And you think that complaining about the two or three things that you think are misfit over here, that, that's not cause for not trusting in God because you're focusing on all the wrong. You're, you're, when the people complained, it displeased the Lord. That's what the book of Numbers tells us. And when our mindset is focused on the negative, of course we're not going to trust God because our eyes are on what we can understand over here. But when you start to look at all that God has done for you, and you begin to praise God and take that, that seven-day challenge. I almost set my, my alarm to go off in the middle of service just as a joke, Pastor, but I figured that wouldn't go over very well. Uh, so, you know, but, but, you know, when you begin to praise God and take that effort, you begin to understand how good God has been to you and how much you can trust him going forward because you begin to realize all that he's done for you in the past. So if you want to build your faith, you, you cultivate your relationship with God. You get to know God. Number two, you focus on your blessings. And, and lastly here, number three, you submit to the trials. Submit to the trials. They're never fun. They're nothing we can choose. But God uses trials to strengthen and to grow our faith. He, he uses trials and tribulations to show us our frailties as humans and to show us just how much we do need to trust him. In 1 Peter chapter 1, the Bible says that the trial of your faith, being much more precious than of gold that perisheth, though it be tried with fire, might be found unto praise and honor and glory at the appearing of Christ. Job is one of those characters in the Bible that went through so much and so much of it without any explanation. And yet Job in the midst of it still understood this principle enough that in Job 23 he said, but he knoweth the way that I take. When he hath tried me, I shall come forth as gold. 
this past Sunday night, I believe it was. It was a week ago, a week ago today. We had a, a family in our church in Mississippi uh, named the Mickle family. And he, uh, he was originally out of our church. He was retired army, and then he served 10 or 11 years as an assistant pastor uh, at, at the church there in Mississippi. Before I got there, I had never met him before last week. But then he had also gone to Belgium and had served as a missionary uh, to the U.S. military and the, the base there in Belgium for the last 11 or 12 years. And he had just come home. He just came off the field. In the last two years, uh, his oldest son, was by the name of Justin, uh, in his late 30s, died of a heart attack. And then about three or four months ago, his other son, his name was AJ, was paralyzed in a car accident from the, from the neck down, completely paralyzed. And two weeks before this, two weeks prior to last week, this man's mother had passed away. And this all took place in a, in a period of a year or two years, and last Sunday night, he began to, to give a, a presentation of, of all of the souls that, I shouldn't say all of the souls, but many of the souls that he had been able to reach in his time at, on the mission field in Belgium. And he began to scroll through this PowerPoint presentation and give uh, stories and testimonies and accounts of all of these people whose lives had been touched through the ministry there. And he began to say, you know, this is on your, your account, Temple Baptist Church, for, for the giving and the prayers and the faith promise that you've given to our ministry the last 11 or 12 years. And as he closed the, the message, he began to sing, oh, rejoice in the Lord. He makes no mistakes. He knoweth the end of each path that I take. For when I am tried and purified, I shall come forth as gold. As a church, we sat there and we listened to a man that had given his life to serve on the mission field. And as a result of all of these crises that had taken place in his family, that's what had led him back to the States to come off the field. And we, we listened as he laid out the testimony of all that took place in Belgium, and we knew the context of what had gone on in his life in the last two years. And as he began to sing that song, it began to, to come to life, if you will. As you sit there and you listen to a man with this testimony and, and he begins to sing this song and you understand that his faith has not waned at all. His faith has not decreased. His faith has only strengthened. Why? Because through every obstacle, through every roadblock, through every trial, through every tribulation that he faced, he only learned to rely on God that much more. And it was that faith that led him to, to be able to sing that song. And it was that moment that we all began to sit back and, and really marvel at him and say, if, if that's the faith of this man, where am I? And, and you gotta, at the end of the day, when, when God looks at your life, when he looks at mine, what does he see? What, what end of the spectrum would he classify our faith as? Would he, would he marvel at our great faith and, and would he see us as prime opportunities for, 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 for blessings and for miracles and for the working and the power of God? Or would he marvel at our sheer lack of faith? Or are we somewhere in the middle? Are we just here in the middle with enough faith to get to heaven, but not enough faith to make a difference in the world around us? As Christians, 
we have to be honest with ourselves. And it's a daily battle. It's a daily struggle. But the question becomes, where, where are we? Where is our faith? What's our faith in? Are we trusting in ourselves? Or are we trusting in God? If we're trusting in God, what's our faith producing? How is it affecting those around us? And are we, are we cultivating a relationship with God? Are we, are we seeking to strengthen and increase our faith? Or are we just comfortable with the status quo? Where is our faith here tonight? Heavenly Father, God, we thank you for...